Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. Uh, my name is Peter. I'm the senior pastor here at, uh, at FBH, and we are excited that you're with us today. We're excited you're joining us either in person or you're joining us uh, online. Either way, we're, we're glad you're here. We've got some ground to cover, so we're going to jump into it. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be. So if you got your Bibles, um, you can flip that open. You got it on your device. Feel free to click that open. We're going to be in, in Mark chapter 12. Uh, as you're doing that, I want to call your attention to, uh, to something that is near and dear to our hearts, our hearts here at FBH is our, uh, our small groups. We love small groups. We've got a whole bunch of different small groups. Small groups meet on different, different nights of the week. About half of our small groups meet on Wednesday nights. And so maybe you've come and you've heard like, hey, come join us on Wednesday nights. We have really good, great dinner. Um, and then afterwards, we have kids ministry available, we have junior high available, um, and then uh, small groups for adults. So it's, hey, built-in built in childcare for you all uh, as well. And I, I love small groups. And so half of them meet Wednesday nights and then about another half of them meet on not Wednesday nights, kind of depending on how the, how the groups function and what their avail- availability is and all that stuff. But I think small groups are the engine that allows us to grow deeper in our faith as the church continues to grow. That's largely what we believe about, about small groups. We never want anybody to, to come to church um, and not be able to connect with people who are also trying to draw closer to Jesus. And so not only do we have like our normal small groups where um, oftentimes this kind of stage of life is the way they kind of divide themselves. You got some men's groups, you got some women's groups, you got married groups, you got mixed groups, you got all these different different types of uh, types of groups. And those groups largely can kind of focus on whatever curriculum they want to focus on. We have right now media, which means that like you can log on and um, uh, you can watch whatever Bible study you want or small group uh, curriculum you want to be able to watch. And then you ask questions and that sort of thing. We have other groups that are sermon-based. So like I, I send out questions during the week based on the message that I gave or Jeff gave or whoever is giving um, for, the, uh, for the week. And so that's like how our normal small groups function. But then we have different groups as well. And these groups are called equipping groups. Equipping groups are a little bit different because like a small group, you sign up and it's like essentially runs a school year, a calendar uh, school year. Um, but, uh, but equipping groups are largely groups that focus on one particular uh, aspect, oftentimes of the faith. And so right now, like we have an equipping group uh, all about how to read your Bible. So we've got a group of people in there learning on Wednesday night about how it is that you read the Bible because it can be, you know, it can be confusing and intimidating and that sort of thing. And so it's all about how to read your Bible. Last semester, we did a group uh, all about parenting. Um, and we had like 36 parents in there, like walking through how is it that I can parent my kid, that also to make sure that my kid is walking with the Lord when they graduate uh, high school, leave my home, do all of those different things. Later on this year, we even have a, a small group, or excuse me, an equipping group that we are going to launch that has everything to do with uh, living out your faith as an entrepreneur or a business owner. So those people who are like minded in that way, how is it that you can utilize the gifts, the skills, the talents that the Lord has given you in, uh, in, 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 in order to, uh, to grow the, uh, the kingdom of God? Sorry, I got uh, stuck there for a second. Um, but the first small group that, that I remember ever being in, I was in high school and it was a guy's small group and we all would, would go to one of our buddies' houses and we would go and we would study scripture and um, then we would probably talk about sports and whatever girl that we were interested in that week, right? Like that was kind of just like the flow of high school small groups. Um, and then I got into college and college, I really like that's when I kind of like my faith became my own was largely in, in college and studied with another group of guys. And it kind of depended on class schedules and, 
and sleep schedules and all that stuff, like whether or not we were actually going to meet. So we did that in college. Then I got married and I joined a married couples small group with Sarah and um, we kind of learned about Jesus and we learned about each other and different things like that. So, so I love small groups. I've been a part of a ton of different small groups in my life. My favorite small groups, though, are junior high boys small groups. So some of you will never get the pleasure of leading a junior high boys small group. Um, junior high boys small groups are, are interesting because you can start with a very basic text. You can start with like John 3.16, right? Like, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life, Right? most popular verse in all of scripture. And you could start with that and somehow you end up talking about like dinosaurs by the end of the entire thing. It doesn't make any sense at all, right? You're like, how do we get from God so loved the world to dinosaurs? Uh, junior high boys, they will, uh, they'll be able to, uh, to find a way. Um, so we largely here, we believe your faith should be impacted more than simply on a Sunday morning. That's why we want to encourage that community side of things. So while I am a, a small group apologist. I think they are incredibly important. It's also worth noting that there can kind of be a shadow side to small groups in general, and that feels almost blasphemous to say based on the fact that we're like, be in community, be in community, but be careful about community. Um, I think this is actually true of the, uh, the American church at large. I think the natural tendency would be to, you know, you, you come to faith, you join a small group, and once we do that, if we get into a good one, we almost kind of become obsessed with the gathering of information. And I want to be able to know more. I want to learn more about Jesus. I want to learn more about Jesus. I want to learn more about Jesus. And that's not a bad thing. Okay, hear me. I want you to learn, to learn about, about Jesus. But the, the issue can be is if we focus simply on learning about Jesus and then we fail to do anything worthwhile with the knowledge and the wisdom that we have gained from that group. I mean, we have people sometimes that are just like jumping from group to group, like they're in like four, five, six small groups. And I'm like, when do you have time to, to put into practice these things that you are actually learning in community, actually learning in, in these groups? And it becomes like we're simply gaining knowledge for the sake of knowledge rather than gaining knowledge for the sake of kingdom growth. If we do that, if we're only gaining knowledge for the sake of knowledge, then we've missed the entire reason we say that you should be in community. It's to deepen your personal relationship with the Lord so you can impact the world with that same knowledge. And we get stuck on that knowledge piece of things. And to be clear, this isn't just small groups. I'm trying to vilify small groups. Again, I love, I love small groups, but it's not just small groups we're talking about. This happens in church all the time as well, right? I, I'd be willing to guess there are a ton of you in here who you showed up today maybe because you want to hear a good message and learn, learn about Jesus. And I won't, I won't fault you for that, though it seems to be a crapshoot as to whether or not the message is good or not. But you want to learn about Jesus. That's why, that's why, you're, why you're here. At least I hope that's, that's why, you're, why you're here. But what can happen is you come in here, you learn some, some interesting things. Maybe you feel convicted by the Spirit because the pastor was stepping on your toes today or whatever it may be, and then you leave. You say, that was a good service, and you never think about what it is that you learned or, more specifically, how it is you can apply it to your life. That's the danger with the American church. Instead, we get, we get hung up on information. Give me information. I need and want more information. I was actually reading an article about uh, there, there were some t scientists, and these scientists hooked these people up to, to the, uh, the science machine, 
That's the formal name for the machine they use. I don't know, I'm not smart enough to know the action, but they, they hooked up their brains to science and um, they, they brought them in and what happened is they had five cups that were sitting out on a table and underneath each of those cups there was something, but they weren't gonna tell the people what was underneath the cups. And so they said, you can come in, we will give you $25 if you don't look under a single cup and you can just leave and, and the experiment is over. And so they largely thought that people were like, 25 bucks, done. Like, let's do this thing, right? Like, I don't care. I don't need to see underneath the cups. Something fascinating happened, though. The vast majority of people chose at minimum three cups before they left with 10 bucks in their pocket, right? There were actually people who were like, you know what? Once I get to five bucks, what does it matter? I want to see what's underneath this cup. And the curiosity got to them. It's actually fascinating that this is what the scientists said about, about information in general. It says, human brains really are hungry for information. And this hunger can devolve into unhealthy, snacking-like behaviors now that we have unfettered access to random information. Right? Think, about, think about the cell phones that many of you have in your pocket. Some of you have them in your hands right now, right? That you have access to all of the information in the entirety of the universe literally in the palm of your hand. More information than, than any other generation has had combined up until now you have access to in your pocket currently. And then we sit there and we just scroll on social media, right? Well, I got to catch up on the news. Are you really catching up on it? Like, what are you doing? Do you, does it really matter, this information you're getting? But our brains are completely and totally addicted to the endorphins that it gives you to learn that new information. What's happening is we're satisfying curiosity and our brains crave it. It's absolutely fascinating. So our brains are addicted to information, right? We live in an age that is literally called the information age, it's how we describe the era in which we live. So here's the deal. Are we more interested in, are we more interested in information or are we more interested in utilizing the information that we are given in order to make an impact for the world? So that's where we're going to kind of pick up in Mark chapter 12. It's going to start in verse 18. This is what it says. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Him is Jesus. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for this brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to them, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. All right, so let's get into this thing, okay? Last week, we talked about three very specific groups of people, okay? Largely aligned politically. So we have the Herodians were totally okay with the Roman government. They actually supported the Roman government. A lot of people think they were getting a kickback from the Roman government, okay? Then we have the Pharisees who were kind of politically neutral, but they didn't like the Romans uh, completely and totally. And then we had the Zealots, on the other hand, who would literally stab a Roman just for talking to them, okay? So we had a wide range of the political spectrum. That middle piece, 
Sadducees, the, the, the Pharisees at that point. The Pharisees largely weren't super political, but they really deeply, deeply believed in the law. They believed in the Torah. And beyond that, they believed in the oral tradition of the Jewish, uh, uh, of the Israelites. Okay, so they believed in the prophets. Okay, they, they believed in the Psalms. They believed in the Proverbs. They believed in, in all of these things that weren't at that point necessarily written down. Okay, but a lot of it was oral tradition. Okay, the Sadducees were also a religious group at the time, also made up primarily of Jewish people. However, if you look all the way back to that first verse in verse 18, it says they did not believe in the resurrection. The reason they didn't believe in a resurrection, specifically a resurrection of Christ, is because of the fact that they only believed in the Torah, the written law. Okay, so they only believed in those first five books of the Bible. Nothing else mattered. No prophets, no wisdom literature, no Psalms, no Proverbs, no Ecclesiastes, nothing. Didn't believe in any of that. First five books of the Bible and those first five books of the Bible alone. Beyond that, the Sadducees, man, they are not a popular group. And not just because they're rude or mean or anything like that, but because they actually had some weird theology for a Jewish group of people. Beyond that, they had zero, we have almost zero reliable information outside of what I'm sharing with you right now about the Sadducees. The Sadducees are mentioned here for the first time in the book of Mark. Sadducees are, are, are not mentioned a ton, but it's actually difficult to obtain any information about this group of people because there are no documents that are clearly Sadducean that have been preserved. They've been lost to history. In the time of Jesus, the Sadducees, they're small numerically. This isn't a large group of people or anything like that, but they exerted a ton of influence both politically as well as religiously. They weren't, however, popular among the masses. It's like they exerted influence, but they're not popular among all the people. Josephus, this guy is a, an old historian. A lot of times, extra biblical evidence that we get about the Bible or certain events that take place and that sort of thing, they're confirmed by this historian, a dude by the name of Josephus. He says that, that the Sadducees were educated men, and many of them held a whole lot of prominent positions. But the Sadducees represented a very specific group of people. The Sadducees represented urban, wealthy, sophisticated people. That was the group of people that they, like, that they represented. And largely, everything, like, all, of the people were, all of the people they represented, they were everybody, all the Sadducees were centered in Jerusalem. So much so that when Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, the Sadducees disappeared from history, got wiped off the face of the earth. But we hear about them, not as much as we hear about the Pharisees, but we hear about them. The New Testament, in the New Testament, the Sadducees are actually mentioned only 14 times, okay? And, and if you've been around church, you've probably heard this name, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? You hear that, but it's only 14 times they're mentioned, whereas the Pharisees are mentioned about 100 times. Bear with me, all of this matters, okay? We're in class right now. Mark mentions them only in this verse and then identifies them beyond that by saying those who say there is no resurrection. So the, the Sadducees, they hold this position, like I said, because they accepted only scripture and rejected all beliefs, all practices that weren't found there. So because of that, they claim that there is, there is no clear teaching about the resurrection in the Old Testament. So they reject the doctrine completely. They don't believe in a resurrection. So this sets them against the Pharisees who did believe in the resurrection. So all of this matters. This Sadducee here that Jesus is talking to, he weaves this tale now of a woman, of a woman who married seven brothers. That is a lot of brothers and never had a kid. Never had a kid. And then this Sadducee, he asks the question, who will she then be married to in heaven? 
So a couple things about this. First off, this question is coming from Deuteronomy 25. If you want a good time, a good read, read Deuteronomy 25 verses 1 through 10. I'll read the two verses that really apply to what we're talking about. But man, at the end of 25, I think it's verses 9 and 10, it talks about the woman. If the, if the brother does not accept her, the woman can spit in her face, take off his sandal, and call him the family of the unsandaled. It's a good read. Real fun. But this is what it says in verse 5. It says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay, so this entire thing has everything to do with the family line, the name being preserved. So the Sadducees asking Jesus about the law from Moses. And to be clear, the premise of this entire question is pretty crazy, right? The law from, from Deuteronomy had nothing to do with who they were married to in heaven. You can read that whole section in Deuteronomy 25. It has nothing to do with, like, their eternal spouse. It had everything to do, like I said, with preserving that family line. And so in the grand scheme of things, with everything else going on, Jesus flipping over tables, the Pharisees being threatened by him, the Herodians being threatened by him, everybody who's like, this pressure is starting to cave in on Jesus and all of his disciples and all this stuff, we have this relig religious leader come up to Jesus at church, at, in the synagogue, and ask him the question, like, what's going to happen? Who am I going to be married to? So Jesus answers the question. He goes on to answer it. He starts by saying, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. I don't know about you, but when I ask a question, I'm hoping someone doesn't come back at me with that answer, right? Like, you dummy, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Like, you should know better. And he starts by talking about when the dead rise, there will be no marriage. This is what this is what Jesus said. I think this is Jesus kind of correcting their theology a, a little bit. Remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so he starts here, starts this answer by saying, when the dead rise, hint, hint, there will be a resurrection. Then he tells them there won't be marriage in heaven because we will be like the angels. Okay? Hear me. Let's correct some, some bad theology here. There's actually a whole study of theology called angelology. For those new to words like that, that means the study of angels. Good for us. We did it, guys. So angelology. Yeah, there's this whole study. When we die, if you, are a, if you are a Christian, hear me, you do not turn into an angel. Okay? You don't get wings. You don't get a toga. You don't get a harp. And you don't float on a cloud and just kind of hang out as an angel now. Okay? When it comes to creation, actually humans are above the angels. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. So what Jesus is saying, you will be like the angels. Well, what record do we have of the angels from the Old Testament? We see the angels sitting there and worshiping and loving and honoring Jesus. They are so enraptured by who Jesus is that all they want to do is just praise God and praise Jesus with the entirety of their being. And that's a hard concept for us to wrap our minds around, especially the part where Jesus is like, there will be no marriage in heaven, okay? It draws out a couple more theological questions. What do you mean there's going to be no marriage in heaven? We know that we have places of residence when we get to heaven, so does that mean I'm not going to live with my spouse? Because some of you are like, that might be a good thing because my spouse snores and I don't know if I can deal with that for all eternity, you know what I mean? So what does that, what does that mean? Does that mean like I, like, like, like I, I don't, I'm not married when I get to heaven? It was actually, um, when I was 22, most of you know this, when I was 22, my father passed away, and I was actually at, up at Camp Sugar Pine as a youth pastor, as a counselor, and I got the phone call, and they were like, hey, dad's on his last couple of days, you need to come home. So I came home. My dad passed away about a week later. 
And then the next year, I went back up to Camp Sugar Pine as a youth pastor, counselor, all that stuff. And so when I got up there, they were like, hey, we have a lot of kids dealing with loss. We know that you just went through loss. Would you be willing to lead like a breakout session with junior high students and talk about like, like loss and, and grieving and all of that stuff? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm convinced it was the, like, like the worst breakout session in the history of breakout sessions. I was terrible. And if you know me, I, like I'm not an overly emotional person. Um, I think I have a feeling. Um, and, and so I got there, and there's all these students who are just like, all these kids who are like, you know, I, my grandparents passed away, and it was junior high, so of course some were like, I just lost my dog last week. It's like, okay, you're in the wrong breakout session, bro. Um, and... Uh, but like lost parents and that sort of thing. And so I go on to start talking to them. I'm like, okay, look, here's the deal. If your parents, if, or if you're the, the person you lost loved Jesus, and they had a faith, they believed in God, then man, they're with, they're with God. And yes, you will get to see them again. But here's the deal. When you do get to see them again, if you have a faith in Jesus, you're really not going to care. And I, th- I mean, it went over as well as that just went over with all of you guys, Right? Because I got a bunch of students in there who are just like, what do you mean I'm not going to care? Like, it's my grandma, it's my grandpa, it's my mom, my dad, it's my dog, right? Like, I, I want to be able to see, I want to be able to hang out with these people again. It's like, no, 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 you are going to be so enraptured, so enveloped with Jesus, so enveloped with God that you will have recognition of the people there. But everything you'll want to do is just to be with the Lord and be with God. And so that's what Jesus is largely speaking to here. He's like, hey, you're not going to be married. Like, there's not going to be marriage in heaven. You're going to recognize we're going to be like the angels where we spend all of our time honoring and worshiping God because we are, we are in the presence of the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And so that's largely what Jesus is speaking to, speaking to here. So after that, he goes on. And Jesus here intentionally cites the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He does this intentionally. And he does this intentionally because what do the Sadducees believe in? They believe the Torah, right? The law. Where do we find Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? In the Torah. Okay, these people would have listened to this. And then beyond that, not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says, what is written in the book of Moses? That whole burning bush scene that we have going on? Like, what happens there where God introduces himself? God doesn't introduce himself as I was, as the God of the dead. He introduces himself as I am. Present tense. Consistently present tense. Right? So Jesus here, he's, he's correcting their theology. He's doing all of those all of those different, different things. And then Jesus says at the very end of it, you are badly mistaken. You're badly mistaken. You care about the wrong things. And so here we have a Sadducee walking around the synagogue asking Jesus a question that ultimately doesn't matter and one in which he didn't have the correct theology on. But it gives Jesus the opportunity to both correct and rebuke him. Important. My assumption is, though, this Sadducee did nothing with that new information. And I'm making a jump there. But my guess is, is that he, he probably did nothing with that information, went back maybe to his Sadducee buddies and kept debating the same ridiculous question, hoping for an answer. So it's kind of a weird piece of scripture, this one. Like, why does this matter? Well, I actually think this is included because it, it, it sets up the second half of this scene. It goes to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. It's not going to be on the screen. It's a very, very famous piece of scripture. Maybe you'll recognize it. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. This is a Pharisee now who walks over. Pharisee walks over as Jesus and the Sadducee are going at it. Remember, Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't get along. They have different theology. Okay, so the Pharisee's like, hey, Jesus, I like your answer. 
as he heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he said, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus says, the most important one is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all of your heart, with all your standing, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. We have a stark contrast between the Sadducee and the Pharisee. The Sadducee who's asking a hypothetical question about seven brothers and this Pharisee who comes up and is like, hey, Jesus, what are the greatest, what are the greatest commands? Right? We have a guy who only wanted to debate needless theology and a guy who tees up the most important commandments that we get from Jesus. This is what our whole mission statement is, is predicated on, right? Love God, love people, serve the world. It's where we get our mission statement. So here's the question. Why does any of this matter to us? Right? And we've preached on the greatest commandments before. We've preached about it. We've talked about it numerous times and all that stuff. So that's why I kind of want to focus on, on more big picture. Let's go 30,000 foot with this entire thing of the difference between what the Sadducee is asking and what the Pharisee is asking. Because the reality is most of us in this room, we are the Sadducee. We are the Sadducee. We're Sadducees too often because we would rather sit in church, rather sit in small groups, rather sit in our groups of friends and debate theology when in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter nearly as much as recognizing our need to love God with our entire being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Why? Because we want the information. Give me the information. We're addicted to information rather than action. We want to know the answer to the question that was posed. Who, who, who is she married to in heaven? And Jesus gives an answer. He's like, there's no marriage in heaven. But like, but like hypothetically, if there was marriage in heaven, like who do you think she would be married to then? Like give me the answer. Give me that info. We want an answer. In reality, the question is pointless. And we do this all of the time. We're not coming up with these random questions about like, like seven brothers getting married to one woman or anything like that. But how about this? Well, how old is the earth? Are you young earth or are you old earth? Like tell me, tell me, tell me, about, tell me about revelation and the tribulation. Like when are people going to be raptured? Like are you pre-trib, are you mid-trib, are you post-trib, are you amillennial? Are you a thousand year, like a literal thousand year reign of Jesus? Like is that, have we answered that question yet? Do you think the Garden of Eden was actually at the North Pole or in modern-day Iraq? Like, what do you think? Where do you think the Garden of Eden actually is? Do you think there's still a seraphim sitting there with the flaming sword protecting it somewhere? Like, tell, tell me about that. Or the Bible says, the Bible says Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. Do you think it was actually a whale, as a matter of fact? And do you think it's even possible that someone could survive in the belly of a big fish for three days and then get vomited out on the ground and still live to be able to tell the tale? And I just asked that. And there were people in here who were like, no, yeah, it's possible. I read a news article about it. I got the information that I literally found out that that happened to somebody else, right? And there's pictures of the guys all pale and white and all that stuff. We crave the information. We want the information. I'm not saying to ignore good theology. I'm not saying to, to ignore that. I'm not saying to ignore important questions. But don't miss loving God and loving people to debate questions that we won't have the answer to until we get to heaven. 
Don't waste that time. And I think we do this for a couple reasons, like this, like, give me the, I want more, more of that answer. The first is we simply want to know the answer, right? We want to know the answer. The same reason that many of you haven't stopped thinking about this red bowling pin since I got up here. You want to know the answer. Why is that? What is he going to talk about? What is that red bowling pin for? It has nothing to do with my message. But curiosity, answer the question. Give me the answer to the question of the red bowling pin sitting on the table. <laughs> Nothing. I literally went into the youth room and found the most random object I could and set it on the table. Why? Because I, I just give me the, inf- the, the information. There's no reason for it. It goes back to, to a couple of theological terms that I like to try to remind us of on a more consistent basis. There's two, th- there's two theological terms. The first one you may have heard of. The first one is the idea of orthodoxy, okay? If, like if you're, specifically, if you're a theologian, like if you do deep dives into different things, orthodoxy, it simply means, um, uh, it means right belief, right? This is getting your theology correct. This is, this is the understanding that, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior in order to inherit eternal life, right? Recognizing there is nothing you can do to gain favor in the eyes of, eyes of the Lord because the wages of sin is death, like Romans talks about. That's right, that's right belief. Our theology is important. Having correct belief is important. The problem is, though, is that oftentimes we just want to stick to orthodoxy, and I'm going to just get as much information as I possibly can. And we're familiar with the word even, orthodoxy. We're so familiar with that word that there's another word we don't even talk about called orthopraxy. Orthopraxy is on the other end of the spectrum from orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right belief. Orthopraxy, right living. And we don't talk about that. We never talk about right living because we're so consumed with the idea of making sure that I can have as much information, I can be as intelligent as, possibly, as I possibly can when it comes to, to all things Jesus. See, orthopraxy is a step beyond orthodoxy. It isn't just that you have right belief. It's that we take that right belief and we actually implement that right belief into our lives. And we are so consumed with the idea of having correct theology, more information, more knowledge, that we've almost completely written off the idea of correct living. And somewhere, somewhere down the line, uh, the, the, the line for right living got blurred, where we assume that right living simply means coming to church. And we've all been guilty of that before, right? And we come to church as we're supposed to come to church. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Please, come to church. It's not fun preaching to an empty room, I promise, I've done it. So please, please come to church. But if we, think, if we think that's the line of our orthopraxy, if we think that's the line of our right living, man, we, like, that is the bare minimum. Right living is all about expanding and deepening the kingdom of God. So everything it is that you are doing should be pointing people back to God. Everything that you're doing should be orthopraxy. Living out your right belief, living out your orthodoxy. Do not hear me. For you note takers, write this down. Do not sacrifice the mission of the church and the mission of God on the altar of curiosity. Do not sacrifice the mission of the church and the mission of, the, of God on the altar of curiosity. So the question becomes, what should our faith look like then? Well, I think, I think we should take seriously the principle of being in church, being in a small group, being in the word. And that's a starting point for all of us who would say that, that we are Christians. 
But church, can we just think for a second, can we just imagine for a second what it would look like if we embodied the belief that we claim to have? That, that if we actually lived out the fact that we believe that God sent his son down to earth, he died and was literally raised from the dead, that we lived, that, we lived that out. Maybe when we say we, we care about those who don't know Jesus, we would actually talk to them about Jesus instead of, instead of being like fearful of rocking the boat. Like, no, I'm not going to talk to them about it. Like, our, our relationship is kind of shaky, kind of shaky as it, as it is. I don't want us to be a church, hear me, that is really good at showing up and hanging out together only to turn around and not mention Jesus for the rest of the week. That's performative Christianity. And performative Christianity is empty. I want to be a church that's known not just for strong theology, but I also want to be a church that is known for strong action in and around our city, in and around our, our county, that reaching all of Kings County for the gospel wouldn't just be a pipe dream, but it would be something that we strive for simply because every single one of us recognizes that the mission at hand is more important than our curiosity regarding when we're going to be raptured. So today we're going to give you a chance to respond this morning. I'm going to invite the band to come back on stage. We're going to transition to a time of communion. If you didn't get communion elements, you can just raise your hand. We've got some ushers coming around. They'll, they'll take care of you. Keep them up. Raise them nice and high. But I do want you to, to think about where you are currently at in your faith. Think about where your faith is currently. Are you at a place right now that is valuing curiosity over mission? Where you think to yourself, you know what, if I could just get more information, if I could just know about Jesus, then eventually I'll know enough about Jesus to then have conversations with other people. And that is so short-sighted. And can I just tell you, you're never going to arrive at that point. Anytime I'm talking to people about Jesus, I, like, I, I, I'm a professional Christian, right? I'm a pastor. Pastor, you should know all the answers. And I am terrified every single time I'm going to say something that is incorrect, something that is blasphemous or heretical, or something that's largely going to lead someone down a path that is not a healthy path for them. I have that fear. And I know you guys have that fear too. That's one of the reasons that, that oftentimes we don't share about our faith is because we feel ill-equipped to do so. Can I just say you're never going to feel equipped? Your orthodoxy is never going to be strong enough where you don't fear man. Galatians 1.10 talks about it. The fear of man and how it absolutely and totally cripples us oftentimes from being able to, to live out our orthodoxy, being able to live out our right belief. But I want you to think of where you're currently. Are you in a place right now that's valuing curiosity over mission? And like I said, curiosity it's not bad. And curiosity, it has its place, but if we can't be missional because we're so consumed by getting non-significant questions answered, then we've lost our way. And we need to be willing to move that forward. So this morning, I'm gonna pray in just a second. I want you to dig a little bit. Does your action and your faith match your curiosity? At the very least, match your curiosity. Or maybe you're in this room, you've never yet made a profession of faith and said, I wanna I, I want make Jesus Lord of my life. And the idea of Jesus as Savior of the world maybe struck a chord with you. We would love to pray along, love for you to pray along with us and make Jesus Lord of your life this morning. Because we believe in what's called an open table here at FBH, an open table. It's a, it's a theological concept, but it has everything to do with communion. It essentially just means that you don't have to be a member with us in order to receive communion, but we do ask that you are a member of the body of Christ. So if you're not, 
and receive your first communion with us today after making a profession of faith. So in just a second, I'm gonna pray. And then we are going to sing part of a song. I'm gonna come up, we're gonna receive communion together. And then after that, we'll stand and we'll sing the last part of the song. So why don't you, why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this text, even the idea of being able to zoom out to 30,000 feet and recognize the cultural distinctions that are going on at the time. Recognizing that this Sadducee, he was asking questions that really weren't important questions. But all the while we have this Pharisee coming up, asking Jesus questions that should impact our lives. That the greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, understanding, and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what our focus should be. And that has so much more to do with action than it has to do with theology. And so God, I pray, man, that we would be people of action, not just people of understanding, not just people of knowledge and information. And in your word even says the demons know your name. Like even they have the information. And then if you're maybe thinking to yourself, I, I, I need to make a profession of faith, whether it's for the first time or you're making a profession of faith for the thousandth time and you need to re-up with Jesus and get your mind and your life right, if that's you, you can simply pray after me with head still bowed and eyes still closed. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I admit that I fall short. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me. You took all of my sin so I could be with you for eternity. And C, I choose to follow you every single day of my life. And that choosing to follow you is so much more than simply coming to church. It's so much more than right belief, God. Help us in our orthopraxy, in our right living. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray.